Welcome to the Secret Life of Cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. Hello, and welcome to the Secret Life of Cookies. Today's guest is the brilliant legal mind and all-around very wonderful human being, Jennifer Taub. And the episode is extra special because it was recorded with both me and Jen at the same time in her kitchen. So instead of Bosco being our dog mascot, for this episode, we have Ponzu the Bernadoodle. I hope you enjoy this episode as Jen brings a lot of clarity and insight to the swirling chaos of legal decisions that happened this week. But just a quick correction. In the podcast, Jen and I, in our giddy state of being in the same room together, kept saying all the big legal news got handed down on September 22nd, when actually the Tish James lawsuit and the 11th Circuit decision happened on the 21st of September, and the special master master issued his order on the 22nd. Before we get to the show, the gods of algorithm would appreciate it if you could leave a hopefully nice review of the podcast on the Apple Podcast site. I would appreciate it very, really, truly, extremely much. Hello, and welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies, live here from the kitchen of Miss Jennifer Taub. Miss Jennifer Taub, will you say hello to everybody? Hey, everybody. I think we're all a little bit giddy because <laughs> this week has been on a scale of like one to 10, 10 being like the busiest, most eventful sort of week legal week in the past five years and one being like, what law? Do we even have lawyers? Do we even need lawyers? What would you scale this? I'd say dial it up to 11. (laughs) That's why I'm standing here today eating an entire bag of chocolate chips. These are the semi-sweet chunks. And I did make fun of Jen for buying Nestle just because I feel so above that. But the truth is we all grew up on it. That rattling sound is so close to the microphone. I apologize to everyone at home. I'll step away. And I want everyone to know, this is like 9.30 in the morning. We have not been drinking anything but coffee, and they've been force-feeding me pickle-flavored peanuts. These are super chunks, and they're really quite delicious. For the record, I have to say that Marissa has taken over my entire kitchen, is eating the chips, and has not even offered me one. No, you've bit into that. <laughs> this is after COVID. We can't, like, lick the same food. There's no more Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, Marissa. You, 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 tell, you tell the people what we're doing here. <laughs> That is the mixer at Jen's house. Um, we are making a recipe by Ravneet Gill, who is famous for making the world's best chocolate chip cookie. And I, I like a challenge. And I said to myself, are they really that good? And the truth is, yes, they really are that good. What was the name of the person who says they made the best? Ravneet Gill. Ravneet Gill. Well, I was just, a friend of mine just called me. Mm-hmm. A few minutes ago. Oh, yeah. And he actually told me that he makes the world's best chocolate chip cookie. I would like to have that person, who shall remain nameless, on my podcast. That's all I'm going to say. And when that person finally comes to my podcast to make apparently the world's best chocolate chip cookies, I'll let you know who that person is. But that's all I can say is please, in my Twitter feed, say whoever it is that says they make the best chocolate chip cookies, please appear on Marissa's podcast. That's all we're asking okay, for. Okay, good. But enough chit and enough chat because first I have to say that Ms. Tab wanted to make chocolate chip cookies, not because we don't always make chocolate chip cookies, and, but you, you wanted to make them for Axel. For my kid who 
loved the cookies that you made. And they're going to share them with one of their friends today after school. So that's, um, it's just love and love and a mother's heart. Um, I'm adding all of the chocolate <gasps> chips. Can I take a chunk? Yes, take a chunk. Oh my God. Oh, they're good, right? And There's it's nothing like a big chunk of chocolate <laughs> when you are drinking a fresh cup of coffee. Yeah. And mm. you should all know Jen Tab makes a fantastic cup of coffee. So we are now jazzed mm. to the gills, not Rodney Gill, not to be confused with her, but we are jazzed because it has been an 11. She's peering into the, she's going to steal them out of the thing. I'm not going to. This I'm, is why I don't tend to bake with people because they tend to steal things out of the bowl. I'm going to, I'm stepping away and refilling my coffee right now. So this has been an incredible week legally, and I am no lawyer, which is why I call upon Jen Taub, who has been on CNN this week. She's been all over the world, and she's been in New York City sitting because she is this sort of a dedicated legal mind that she found herself in New York City this week. I think you were at NYU. I had a, had a, yeah, giving a talk about a paper at NYU. Yeah. Right. And so you're like, oh, I'm in New York City. And what else is going on in New York City? So exciting that it turns out the special master Deary was having the first status conference with the U.S. government and Donald Trump's lawyers to talk about, I mean, it seems like a light year away, but to talk about what to do about the 11,000 documents, including about 100 files that are marked classified. And I... I have to tell you, I beyond giddy when I knew that I could fit this into my schedule, it was almost like euphoric bliss. I mean, these moments in life when you say this is what I was meant for, I was meant to sit in a courtroom and watch like one of the most dramatic hearings on the planet. And I know it sounds geeky or whatever, but I I mean, I just thought what a privilege it is. What are the odds that I happen to be in the city? Because I live, folks, I don't live in New York or Washington. People think that I live in Western Massachusetts near Smith College. I teach at a law school in Springfield, Massachusetts. And that's about a three hour drive or a little more by train. And I can't just, you know, on a dime, pop down the subway to the courthouse. Or and, fall down the subway. Or fall down the subway. I didn't fall down the subway. I fell on the, fell. I fell on the sidewalk. The shoes were too tall. She's fine. She's fine. I'm fine. Just too, I, nothing broke. Not my sunglasses, not any part of my body. No concussion this time. And I made it on time to the courthouse. But it was just an incredible opportunity. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, getting a job in academia is worth it for me. I know a lot of people complain about teaching because they, and I don't know why, I think they're very spoiled to complain because they say, well, there's this, you know, you've got to publish here, publish there. You know, the whole thing is you don't have to do that. You can have your own voice. You can try to just teach students and you get some free time to do these things. It's the job of a opportunity of a lifetime, and I'm very grateful for it. Yeah, I fell into um, teaching thanks to uh, just being so close to Montclair State University, and I have to say, it's one of my favorite jobs of all time. This podcast and being able to teach these kids and learn from them—I know it's a cliche, but it's true. There's a reason we have cliches. It's just the most wonderful thing, especially for me, as the world of media is being attacked. And changed. And here you have people who are really keen to go and become journalists. And so what better opportunity? I want to shake something. Yes. So this is a piece of paper. No, it's many pieces of paper. It's like four. But I want to say this thing. So remember I just was saying I was in Tuesday, just Tuesday. And we're taping this after Tuesday, later in the week. Just Tuesday, this is when I went to the hearing. And lo and behold, on Thursday, two days later, 
the judge, the special master in the case, um, Raymond Deary, issued this order. And so in other words, you know how we often think, oh, this is going to be like Dickens' Bleak House. Things have to take a really long time. You know, federal judges don't have to drag things out if they don't want to. When I saw him in court, he was a no-nonsense, let's keep the trains running kind of guy. Um, but not Mussolini. Not, not Mussolini. I mean, there's nothing wrong with efficient um, mass transit service that runs on time. We should not malign it and always associate it. And by the way, we did this. We had this conversation before. Mussolini actually didn't keep the trains running on time, the oh. Italian dictator. So the, here's the deal. For all the things people say, well, I like fascism because it keeps the trains running on time. It turns out it doesn't. It doesn't. And it doesn't actually keep course cases going quickly if it's for the fascist leader's benefit. So anyway, the point is this judge kept things moving. And he, you know, we have this order, which people have been talking a lot about. The most important thing is it's a very put up or shut up kind of order. Can I tell you a bit about that? Yeah, I really want to know because because our cookie dough is basically made, done, and I'm making horrible scraping sounds and I apologize. It looks like something that if I were either my age right now (laughs) or a child, I would want to just reach my puffy little hand into scoop up a bunch of it and smash it into my face. But Marissa is right here. So I will not be doing it. It is. She shouldn't. I'm really glad I chose the chocolate chunks by Nestle. And we're not. That's not even a sponsor. But I don't need to do Ghirardelli, the Italian company, which is nothing wrong with Italy. It's not Italian. Ghirardelli isn't Italian? Ghirardelli is from San Francisco. Well, then why is it called Ghirardelli? Because many Italian people moved to this country. I love that. (laughs) I'm not. Because you know what? There's another great thing that happened this week. Many immigrants came to this country and benefited benefited this country and made it a great country. So wherever you allow immigrants to move. I love that. My people aren't from here. I'm, you know, from Eastern Europe somewhere way back. And I am now glad that that we could have eaten California chocolate chips. That's right. They're I'm sorry, not Pennsylvanian. <laughs> yeah, they're Pennsylvanian. From, uh, yeah, our, our Nestle friends who were like based in probably Switzerland at this point. But so we're going to also get onto the subject of what it means to traffic humans from one state to the other. But that's for later on in the conversation. So we, um, I'd like to know what it meant that Judge Deary moved with such great speed and alacrity. What it means is that he was given a specific task by Judge Cannon, and he is going to fulfill that task, that he is most importantly not using this kind of um, delegation to him to slow things down or put sand mm. in the wheels. I think one of Donald Trump's strategies always is to do anything to delay because if you are most likely in the wrong, delaying buys you another bit of time to strategize or get people to be on your side who might lie for you or whatever. We've seen this over the years. Delay helps. And so when he asked for the special master to come in and look through documents to decide which ones were really his. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it really wasn't so much about that. It was really just a delay tactic. And so what this means is Judge Deary isn't going to do that. You know, another judge, anyone, if they were a special master, once you've been assigned a role, they could have had their first conference in October. They They could have made no demands and it could have dragged out for year after year. I think about a lot of other regular federal court cases where the judges are so busy or they're not in a hurry. And it could go for a whole year where the parties don't move at all on anything. 
So this is incredible that in two days, not two weeks, not two months, not two years, he's saying, let's get this done. But there's something else more important about what happened. Okay. Between Tuesday, when Judge Deary Mm -hmm. had the hearing, and Thursday, in that little window of time, when he said, okay, let's get on the schedule, the 11th Circuit made a ruling. And so I need, for people listening, I need to try to simplify this as much as I can. Donald Trump, as you know, had his home and club in Mar-a-Lago searched or raided, I, I don't mind saying that word, by the FBI in August because they had a search warrant showing that there was probable cause that there was evidence of three different crimes going mm-hmm. on that had happened and there'd be evidence of it there. And this included espionage, obstruction of justice, and holding onto certain, holding onto government documents without a good reason. I'm keeping those three crimes pretty simple. And so the search happens in August 8th, and it wasn't for two weeks that Trump's lawyers were upset by this. And what they, well, they're upset anyway, but they didn't act. And what they did, instead of going to the, the magistrate judge who issued the search warrant, they went to a new judge. This is Judge Cannon. And they said to her, we want a special master and to look through to, to stop the government from using the documents because they're mine. Um, and what that Judge Cannon did is she said, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, you can have your special master. And that ends up being Deary. And also with regard to these hundred files that the governments that are classified, I'm telling the government they can't use them anymore for their criminal investigation. That's what happened two weeks after the search. So of course, the government was very concerned because among these documents are apparently information about sources and methods, the names of and locations of spies, apparently information about nuclear capabilities of some other nation, maybe our ally, maybe an adversary. They're concerned. They want to be able to use them to find out who else may have this and build the case. And they also want to share them with the national security apparatus to stop any damage that has occurred or find out where it has. So Donald Trump initiated this separate thing, this separate civil lawsuit. So this is what happened. That's what got us to hear. Okay, so what happened between the time I saw Deary and now? Well, the Department of Justice had appealed to the 11th Circuit saying this Judge Cannon is off her rocker. You know, she has no right to slow down law enforcement looking at these documents. And the 11th Circuit agreed. I think the phrase that's been used is loose cannon. She is a loose cannon. Loose cannon. That really has a, that's pleased me as a plan works. So yeah, the 11th Circuit, right, um, right um, before Deary issued the order on Thursday, again, two days after his hearing, the 11th Circuit said, Judge Cannon, and I can't even say this in nice words, Judge Cannon, you, you, you fucked up. Mm-hmm. I mean, very lengthy legal reasons. And in this decision said, you need to do two things. One, you need to, we don't agree with you. And you're telling the government to not look at the documents. That's bullshit. They should be able to. That was one thing. And another thing that they said was basically that means segregating in the 11,000 documents that aren't marked classified. Deary can still deal with the process of showing those to Donald Trump's lawyers. But as for the 100 ones that are classified, that's not even in Judge Deary's mandate. And because this is what the 11th Circuit said, they said, you know, if they're not classified, I can't see any reason that Donald Trump would have a possessory interest in them. Mm-hmm. But they're not his if they are not classified and also why he would need to have them. That was huge. This all went down very quickly. And one more thing. This is getting a bit in the weeds. I'm sorry. No, it's beautiful. OK, thing. so this all happens. And, and then on top of it. The judge Cannon, instead of waiting, because what would normally happen now is Donald Trump's lawyers would say, 11th Circuit, you think you're such a big deal. I'm going to the Supreme Court. But 
Cannon, so embarrassed, I think, by being slapped back by the 11th Circuit, instead of waiting, amended her order, told the government, you can have those documents right away. Deary, have, you, know, you need to have nothing to do with the classified ones. So now it appears, it appears that there's nothing for Donald Trump to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm interested in kind of what moved Judge Cannon to, was it really just embarrassment? Was it just this sort of, was it just this sort of like personal, was it, does she have a sense of shame? Like if you're the kind of person who's appointed by Donald Trump, do you have a sense of shame? What moved it for her? You know, I don't know what moved her in the first place to do what she did. I think there are a lot of people saying, well, she was appointed by Trump, so she's in his camp. And, you know, maybe she was just trying to be like the Bork in the situation, like Robert Bork, who was the one who finally fired whoever it was. um, I can't remember, Archibald Cox or something. In the Nixon administration, later he was up for U.S. Supreme Court. But it doesn't matter but, but what motivated her. But one theory would be that if she thought she was doing the conservative thing, and I don't mean conservative just politically, but conservative in terms of following the law, uh-huh. when she saw that it, the three justices in the 11th Circuit, two of them were also Trump appointees, right. um, that she was going to be having no legal career. It's kind of like she was going to become the Kristen Cinema of the bench, which we just saw about Kristen Cinema, yeah. who has tried to play both sides. And now apparently she is equally unpopular among Republicans and Democrats right. to the extent that there's a judicial philosophy that could be associated with conservatism. And on the other end, a judicial philosophy that might be associated with progressivism. And if we're simplifying it, if you offend everybody, you have no future. I mean, you know, it's a lifetime appointment, but, you know, I think there could be a lot of things going through her mind at this moment. But the thing is, if it's true, so we've, we've seen a lot of legal experts, and I agree with them, that it look, appears as if there might not be anything to appeal at the moment for Donald Trump. There's a possibility that he might seek a writ of mandamus, okay. asking, no one has said this, but I'm wondering whether they'll try to seek a writ of mandamus, trying to order Cannon to reinstate the Injunction? I don't know. I doubt it. But what is a writ of mandamus? Oh, I don't want it. It, it, it. It's just it. Does it involve macadamia? I don't. I don't, I don't think. I, I think I don't know where they would go and how they would do it. But I doubt that would. It doesn't involve macadamia. I mean, basically, where we are right now is the, the the government criminal law enforcement in the federal government at the Department of Justice is going to be continuing now its case to find hmm. out whether there was a important enough violation of the Espionage Act to indict Donald Trump. He has uh, famously worms his way out of things. Um, I was going to say, yeah, he famously worms his way out of things. And I want to understand, like, if he can't worm himself out of this, then what happens? This is a speculation. What happens with Donald Trump when he can't worm his way out of things? He just bursts into, like, lie after lie after lie. Oh, he's already done that. Let's go back to what we've been talking about now, what's been going on for the past few weeks is this kind of like sand in the gears. Mm -hmm. Now, let's pretend that we are back on August 8th when the Department of Justice got these documents. Okay, because that's where we are. Right. And there are now a batch of them that they can they're, they're using to investigate whether there are crimes of espionage or obstruction that Donald Trump in particular committed. And one of the things that we have heard is that Donald Trump was taking some of these classified documents and showing them to guests at Mar-a-Lago. And now I know, knowing Marissa and me, (laughs) that we're imagining the guest being a lovely lady with a nice hairdo, wearing a lily poulter, you know, very, you know, subtly displaying 
her very shiny diamond ring, but that is not necessarily, you know, and her handsome plaid pant wearing preppy dude. But that is not necessarily the guess we're talking about. There has been Mm -hmm. speculation by people who I would trust that some of the guests might have been members of Congress with whom he may have shared. I thought you were going in a different direction, which was Russian operatives, Chinese operatives who were like, oh, sure, I'd love to have a job at Mar-a-Lago. I'm very good at cleaning the toilets and dusting. Or the people who wandered in and pretending they were from some from the Rothschild family, right? Right. Oh, yeah, Anna de Rothschild. I, Rothkopf, yeah, that my original name was Rothschild. The thing is... No, just kidding. Her, uh, Marissa's name, last name, um, she, she was born into... Na- she's Nay Rothschild. She... Nay uh, Rothkopf. Rothkopf, damn it, damn it. <laughs> Rothkopf, I got, you got me all off base. But the last time she visited me, my darling husband not, didn't just make... I made the coffee, but he, he made it a latte. And so we called her Frothkopf. And I call her Marissa Frothkopf. And so if I do that, um, please, uh, please go ahead and do that yourselves as well. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Marissa Frothkopf. But don't call her brother David, David Frothkopf, because he wouldn't like that. No, he'd get all frothy at the... <laughs> so let's go back to this idea that these papers were being shown to members of Congress. Or anyone. Let's just say yeah. anybody. The thing is, Donald is sort of stuck on the red herring of, I classified them with my mind. That, for the most part, and I'll give the exception, for the most part... That doesn't impact the enforcement of the espionage law or the um, obstruction law that we were talking about or the records law. That's an important point, I think, that gets missed in all the jokes that idiots like I make about, like, he did classify it with his brain. Uh, because whether it's espionage or not, I'm whether it's espionage, that's... Classified or not. I mean, the, the way that it could come into play is if you look at the language, and I was looking closely at this, at 18... USC 783, and you can find this by Googling. Um, Cornell University has a pretty good website that has a lot of federal statutes. And if you look at the statute and you're looking at the mental state, because every almost every crime has a sort of, there are a series of actions tied to a mental state that you do those actions, and that makes it the crime. And part of the espionage statute is about taking information that would be damaging to the U.S. government's national interests and doing something with it, right? It could be, like, for example, sharing it with somebody. And so to the extent that he, you would have to believe that he thought because he declassified it with his mind simply by sending them off-site that he decided they couldn't be damaging to the national interests of the government. Well, that, first of all, that doesn't make a lot of sense anyway, and I don't think it really impacts that much. But as for, if we don't take the red herring, as a red herring, and we look at it on its face, there's no possible way that you could claim that just by sending boxes and you don't tell anybody what the boxes have in them, and you yourself don't keep an inventory of what they are, that those could now be declassified so that anybody who had them could give them or sell them. If I happened to be at Mar-a-Lago and saw one of those and took my camera and took a picture of it, I don't believe even if he had, quote, declassified it, mm-hmm. that's still espionage if I take that information and sell it to somebody. Or even part of the other issue, well, anyway, I'll just, I'll just stop there. So, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's laughable. The other thing I want to say that Judge Deary did, which is kind of fabulous at this point, is not only did he put them on schedule in this order from Thursday, mm-hmm. I'm sure you've heard this part, he said, um, you know, he, he basically is, you know, the put up or shut up piece here is pretty interesting. He said that he wants from Donald Trump's lawyers for them to look at the list 
the inventory list of all the documents, not right, right. including the 100, and let him know. And there's a date they have to do it by which I, I don't I think it's next week. Yeah, it's very soon. Not let them know if there's anything on that list that did not that was not there. In other words, let me translate into human language. Please make a list for me of anything you believe the government planted at Mar-a-Lago. What the judge is saying in judge language is, yo, your client is all over Fox News, True Social, and all of his, mm-hmm. you know, delegates or surrogates are out there saying, maybe the government planted things. I need you to say in a court of law the real deal. That to me it was a beautiful uh, thing. was a beautiful thing because I feel that so many of us have been watching for so long him sort of going on Hannity or whatever and sort of slipping around the facts and slipping around and saying, oh, this is this way and this is, and everyone starts to believe it. Well, finally in a court of law, someone is calling him on it. And it feels like something very, something good may happen from that because is there any way around there showing up next Thursday, which I think is the date or next Friday and talking about it? No, because that particular, I can't see it because that particular order is not something you can appeal. Something folks may know is normally when you're in federal court, um, usually the easiest way to do an appeal is after a final judgment in a case. That Mm -hmm. could be like a jury verdict, right? There's something called an interlocutory appeal. That means in the middle of things. And usually speaking, generally speaking, you can only appeal the kinds of things that themselves were interlocutory. So if there was a preliminary injunction or there was something like that. So I think that, I think they're stuck with having to do this. And if you were his lawyer, what would you do? Quit. <laughs> I mean, especially the guy who's already been paid. No, I give back the money. <laughs> give back the money and leave. Well, no, actually, but in all seriousness, what I would do is I would just say I'd find out. And if it's nothing, it's nothing. Remember, Donald doesn't care what goes on in the courts. He's still going to lie in public. And, you know, similarly, one thing we haven't talked about is also this week, this is yeah. the worst week in Donald Trump's life other than when his brother dumped mashed potatoes on his head <laughs> back when he was a child. Um, which he's still getting over. At this point in our career here in podcast land, we need to switch to the very special conversations that people who are subscribers to the Deep State Radio Network get to be privy to. And having Jen Taub here live and in person and literally also was live and in person in the Judge Deary courtroom, I really want to find out what it was like to be there and watch his lawyers. And two, I also wouldn't mind getting into a little more of the weeds of Donald Trump and immigration and whether or not Governor DeSantis is a human trafficker, which is what we'll be talking about after the break. And if you'd like to subscribe, go to the Deep State Radio Network and you can subscribe. It's $5 a month. And uh, I never thought I'd be working for like National Public Radio, like speeches, but here we go. And there's no tote bag involved, just a lot of great what? extra content. What would I put in a closet <laughs> like three feet tall of tote bags? What am I going to do? Not from NPR, but from every conference I go to. Every conference, we all have the tote bags. That's just why we should get rid of plastic bags. Thanks for listening. Please follow Jen Taub on Twitter and don't forget to subscribe to my Substack at marissarothkoff.substack.com for this episode's recipe and many more recipes to boot. Have a great week.